Hi, future self. Welcome back. Um, I know I haven't spoken to you in a while, and that's owing to the fact that I haven't really had time to think about my future self in a long time. Um, I've been too busy thinking of my current self. It's been a lot of travel to dance competitions and then travel to practice. And then during the week when I'm not traveling or dancing, I'm so tired um, or I get sick from all the traveling. Um, I went to Montreal twice and then we had uh, two competitions in Vancouver as well. So it was a lot of learning on the go and making changes quickly for the next competition. But I am back in Victoria for a little bit. We have a competition soon again in Nanaimo, but at least I don't have to get on a plane and deal with all the grossness of planes. Um, the good news is I recently watched a number of really great shows and read many good books. So this podcast episode is more like a reflection on the things that I've watched and read recently um, because it's been a while since I talked to myself. Um, this is going to feel a bit like a hodgepodge mix of different things that come up. Surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, a lot of the things I've been watching and reading have to do with some kind of philosophical topic. And on my long ferry rides, I've been thinking a little bit about how I have a lot of moral inconsistencies or my previous beliefs are not consistent with my values and so on. So today is going to be a bit of a reflection on those things. year coming out of my COVID, um, I finished a book by Christine Korsgaard called Fellow Creatures, and it's about animal ethics. Um, previously, I've kind of thought about animal ethics more on the lens of uh, we justified to eat animals, or we justified to have them as pets. Um, this book by Korsgaard really forced me to think about other issues relating to animals as well, and forced me to change some of my beliefs that I held really strongly before. So one of the first questions that she asked is, do animals have moral standing? And um, if you had asked me this previous to this year, I would have said yes without even thinking and without even really thinking about what the word moral standing means. I think intuitively one can explain moral standing as kind of having um, the status that someone should care about someone. So let's say I believe that animals have moral standing. That means I believe we should care about animals and that we have some kind of a duty towards them. And Course Guard, I think, really breaks this down more clearly. So to her, someone or something that has moral standing has to have a means to their own end. So they have to have um, either a goal or an objective in life. So this relates a little bit to autonomy. 
but it's not necessarily the same. So someone could be dependent on other people or other creatures, but still have kind of an end to their existence. Um, another thing that moral standing creatures should have is also rationality, or I guess one could say sentience. So they need to be able to identify and put action into achieving their goal, whatever that is. So in this sense, I think animals definitely have moral standing. They have an objective to life, which is to exist and survive, whatever that is. So, you know, if a cat is thirsty, they would go and get water and try to um, quench their thirst. Or if a lion is hungry, they would go out to prey. So I think I'm convinced by her point there that animals do have moral standing. But she makes a very good argument is humans have moral standing. I don't think we have to debate about that. And if you believe that animals have moral standing, that doesn't mean that animals and humans are the same, which is something I believed before. In fact, I used to argue that animals and humans are pretty much the same in terms of importance in the universe, I guess. And I used it to justify being able to eat meat because, you know, wolves and tigers, they wouldn't think twice before eating me. So it follows that I can eat other animals as part of my existence and survival. So Course Guard kind of asks us to reconsider that, or asked me to reconsider that, just because we owe a duty of care towards animals doesn't mean that it's the same duty of care that we owe to other human beings. So there are some uh, answers to this. I think the two most convincing ones for me, one is the problem of proximity. So we care more about things that are closer to us. I care more about my sister than I do my neighbor's daughter, for example. I don't really care about what they do, but I care deeply about what my sister does. Um, she is closer to me. So because animals are kind of further away in the lineage and evolution map than other humans, it should follow that I should care more about other humans than animals, even though they both have moral standing. And then another point that Chorus Guard makes that really convinced me, that a very good difference between animals and humans. And by the way, I've heard quite a lot of arguments from like Kant or Bentham about the differences between animals and humans, and I've never really bought a lot of them. Like some philosophers argue that humans have what we call what they call higher pleasures. So we can read poetry and dogs can't read poetry and therefore we're superior to dogs. And I just think that's very relative. Like who cares about poetry? Only the people who can read it, right? Or some philosophers argue that animals can't experience aesthetics or they can't be part of a social contract. Um, I think this 
was fairly prevalent among the philosophers who think of society as having a binding contract where we agree to behave in a certain way so that society as a whole can benefit from the security and prosperity. And so their argument is that because animals don't have rationality, so they can't have membership in this uh, contract, and therefore they don't have moral standing. So I kind of don't agree 100%, just on the fact that, you know, we have pets, we bring pets into our lives. Some people grieve over their pets when their pets die, just as if they would grieve over a family member. So there's just something, I, I can't make um, a really strong argument right now, but just based on intuition, that just feels like not the right point. But Course Guard makes a really good point that I have to agree with, which is the, that one of the differences between animals and humans is kind of the commitment to achieving one's goal, the level of engagement that humans have. So previously I mentioned the example of animals would, you know, feed themselves when they're hungry, or they would deal with their thirst, but humans kind of have this ability to suspend, I guess, the immediate need for a longer term goal. So let's say cows who sit in the sun and they get hot. So what do they do? They move into the shade because they want to get out of that sun. Humans, on the other hand, or at least some of us, um, have a goal to be tanned. They want that bronze skin. So when they sit in the sun and it's hot and their skin is burning, instead of giving into that instinct and dealing with that immediate need, they can suspend that because they have made a commitment to a goal that is further in the future. They want to be tanned, they want their skin to look a certain way so they can put up with the heat. So regardless of what you think of this goal, I personally think tanning is not a very good goal, <laughs> but some people do have it and humans do have this ability more so than animals to commit to a plan, to be disciplined enough to do things that are kind of unnatural. Or think of people who have gone on diets or people athletes who have very rigorous training schedules. They would forego their sleep or the immediate meal in order to achieve something in the long term. And that is something we don't really see in animals. Animals do go and pursue what is important to them. But from what we see, these um, needs are quite immediate and they are more closely related to their need for survival than us humans. So I think Horse Guard here really convinced me to refine that belief regarding animals and humans. Um, you could argue based on this, I'm not making this argument, but you could say that because of this difference in humans and animals, it is more morally justified to kill animals because their needs are more, have been met, right? So as long as you've raised your pet well, 
or as long as you raise your cattle in a humane way and give them what they need, whatever it was, food, water, shade, shelter, then most of their life's goal, I guess, have been met. Whereas if you kill a human, there are many things that that human have the potential to achieve that can no longer be achieved. So it's more cruel to kill a human than to kill an animal. If, if you follow these lines of arguments, then you could justify um, killing animal for meat or you know, experimenting on them or just not caring about their welfare in general. I don't know if I really believe, I really am convinced by that argument, but it does have a point. Um, I think the important point here is though, even if you believe that animals and humans both have moral standing and that we owe a duty of care to both animals and humans, it doesn't mean that we owe the same amount of care. So I think I need to spend a few more years refining what that difference is. What do I owe to humans that I don't owe to animals? Where Where is that line drawn? I think for a lot of people, it's kind of a subconscious line. People who eat meat like me might um, agree that we should not treat animals with severity, even when we raise them for food, we should give them the space and the comfort to live. And other people might think no animals are just um, a means for humans to achieve what we need, whether it be food, whether it be a scientific experiment so that we can better the lives of humans. Um, yeah, one problem that kind of comes arises from this refined belief, I think, is the problem of predation. And I have never thought of this problem before, but Korsgaard pointed this out and I realized I have a moral inconsistency here. So let's say I'm a deer um, and I'm hunted by a wolf in the wild. The wolf will hesitate will not hesitate at all to claw at me, um, bite me, <laughs> tackle me to the ground, to eat me. And the wolf wouldn't care that I am suffering, that I'm injured, and the wolf wouldn't wait for me to be dead before it eats me. The wolf would go ahead and start eating at my organs and my limbs, even though I'm still alive. So this is scary. It's a lot of suffering and pain for animals to suffer before they completely die and get eaten. So if I'm a person who believes that humans and animals have the same moral standing, and also I do believe in assisted suicide in humans, I think we should give people the option to die painlessly if they choose to then it should follow that animals should also be given the chance to die painlessly and humanely, which means the natural predation that we know exists in wildlife is something we should work to avoid just to reduce the suffering 
of animals in general, right? Like, we don't want animals to suffer so harshly before they get eaten and die. So what does this look like? Do we go out and euthanize every single animal that was preyed on? Or do we just hold every single animal in captivity and humanely kill the ones that are preyed on and then feed them to the wolves and tigers and the lions? No matter how I think about this, it doesn't feel like the right answer. So there's something inconsistent here in my morals. It's either that this is a point where maybe I have to say we don't owe that duty of care to animals to protect them from predation. Or maybe I do need to accept the conclusion that we need to do everything in our power as humans to make sure that, you know, nature doesn't have its way and animals are protected from the suffering. So, yeah, another point that Course Guard pointed out um, that I'm still thinking about. Another book I read recently is The Door by Magda Szabo. She's a Hungarian writer, and in her novel, um, a writer hires an older woman to be her housekeeper. Over time, the two women bond, and the housekeeper shares some of her life secrets with the writer. Um, this book poses a moral dilemma, too. Would you save your friend even though you know that she does not want to be saved? Even though you know that she is willing to end her life and protect her secrets rather than be treated in the hospital, basically? It's not that easy of a question to answer after you read the book. I think if someone just asked me this question straight up, I was, oh yeah, definitely. I would honor my friend's wishes and, you know, let them die the way they want to be found. But after reading the book, I feel like emotionally, I don't think most people will come to that conclusion. We do have a duty to save lives in general, especially if that's someone we care about might again with the proximity. I care about my closest friends and family members more than strangers, so I care more about their well-being than I care about other people. But then we also have a duty to honor our friends' wishes, whatever beliefs or values that they hold close to their heart. We should respect that and try to honor those as much as we can, and that's why we have legal system in place to honor someone's will. Even though they died already, they still deserve to have their will carried out the way they want it to. So which one is the more important one? I think it's the emotional side kind of prevents me from saying, yeah, I'll let my friend die because that's what she wanted. Um, but then I also have to remember that we accept our friends for the differences that they are. Like, they have values that are different from my values, but I accept them because that's what friendship is about, right? So if my friend 
um, values, whatever, dignity and privacy over their own lives, even though I disagree with that value, it will still be better to honor that than to kind of intervene in their life and try to save them at all cost. So in the book, the writer made the choice to save her friend from dying despite um, kind of violating her privacy and bringing her possessions and body out into the public. Um, and she's wrecked with guilt in the end. I think the book really made me realize that our heroic acts, like whatever we think we're doing out of moral on duty is more for our benefit than anyone else's. Like the writer um, saved her friend perhaps more out of her own guilt and her own need to satisfy her duty than for her friend's well-being. So that's another thing to contemplate too when we're making moral choices especially when those choices contradict with someone else's. Other than reading books, I've watched a show, a Japanese TV show recently called Kamisama no Ekohiki. It kind of translates to God's favoritism. Um, in the show, God listened to two wishes from a boy and a girl who um, got into accidents, separate accidents, but at the same time, and they wished to be woken up as someone else. They wanted to be transported into someone else's body. So the God switched their bodies and they woke up to a brand new world and the show ponders upon what how life is different when you are in someone else's body what does it mean to your identity your friendships and your romantic interests so i mean the first question i asked myself is if my friend got transported into another person's body would i still like them it's not that easy to answer again i think my instinct is that yeah i would still love them for who they are because all their memories and their personality and their hopes and their dreams would still be the same so there's no reason to think of them differently but that's not quite the complete answer is it this is another one of my uh, value inconsistencies I think modern neuroscience might point us to believing that body is integral to a person's identity. And I was never a fan of dualism anyway. I don't believe that there is a soul that is separate from the body. I believe that, you know, you are who you are and your body is part of that. So why does it feel to me that I would still love my friend for who they are, even if they're in someone else's body. Um, I mean, I think of some of my friends who I haven't seen in person in a long time because of the pandemic. I only get to text them over internet or send them memes 
um, or chat with them online, or for some of them, make podcasts with them. Um, so if they suddenly have a new body, let's say they get plastic surgery and change the way they look, or they have a sex change uh, surgery, um, I think I would still think of them as the same. Like this person who is responding to me, interacting with me, and keeping me company over the internet is still the same. Especially since I don't really know what they look like now, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but then, if you think of situations where somebody might lose their, some of their current abilities, or the opposite, they might gain a new set of abilities that I uh, didn't know of them before, then that has the potential to kind of change who they are as a person, how they view life, what their hopes and dreams are, right? Like, if my friend is found out that they are a music prodigy, then now maybe they are spending a lot more time practicing, performing, becoming famous, and now they might have a totally different view of life than they did before they were discovered. So in that case, it's almost like that body ability change led to a change in their personality. So it's like meeting a new person and getting to know them as a brand new person. So how do, where is the line between <laughs> what a person was before and who they are now and how that relates to their body and their identity? Again, I don't really know. <laughs> I think I hold firm to my belief that there is no such thing as dualism, but I have to admit that there are cases where it's more convenient or easier to make a decision when you do separate that soul from body. Soul being whatever your memories and your values and beliefs uh, or mental capacities are, and then your body being, you know, whatever you're physically capable of or physically look like. So I hope that none of my friends get transported into another person, but I have had friends who change over time and then they're no longer compatible with me. So it's not that far-fetched of an idea. Clearly I need to do some more thinking to better align my dualism, anti-dualism views with how I actually behave in real life. Another topic that the show made me think about is the type of friendships. So there's obviously platonic friendships, people that I don't have any romantic interests with, but then there's a few people who I realize have a heightened closeness to me. There are people that I really wish that I talked to every day, and when I don't hear from them, it makes me feel sad. Um, and there's people who, when the first time I met them, I thought they were very attractive. Um, they were very interesting, um, even though I don't have any motivations to become romantic partners with them. So is friendship also kind of like a spectrum? There's no like neat categories where you can slot your friends like, oh, he, this is a my platonic group. 
this is my romantic group. <laughs> if you're into um, polyamory. And then maybe there's another group for sexual attraction. Like people that you love to be with and be intimate with their bodies. Um, maybe my... Maybe we all have this subconscious thought of, you know, aligning our friends on the spectrum, but we don't openly talk about it. <laughs> I think if you your friend found out where you put them on the spectrum, it will be, it will break this friendship. So finally, I want to talk about another show that I've put off watching for a long time, and I'm glad I finished. Um, it's called The Good Place. Um, definitely the creator and the writer is a philosophy nerd, and I think a lot of the concepts he had to dumb down, <laughs> I guess, for the TV audience, like the topic on free will and determinism, it's not that easy. <laughs> I think it's not as clear-cut as if you believe in determinism, then it's not compatible with free will. There are compatibilists who believe that they are uh, obviously compatible. And then I think I've heard of at least one philosopher who thinks of himself as a semi-compatibilist who can't really decide if he thinks free will and determinism are compatible or not. So anyway, it's a very age-old topic, and I'm sure the writers had to make it as simple as possible for the audience. Um, what I got the most out of the show is that morals are not easy. There is no obvious winning answer. In the show, uh, after you die, you get all your points in life added up based on how good you were, what the good deeds you did versus the bad deeds you did and then you get sent to heaven or hell. So that point system is, to me, a pretty utilitarian um, approach to morals, right? It's all about the consequences of your actions, and good means your actions led to good outcome, and bad means the opposite. But as the show progresses, you see these the main characters go through more dilemmas, and a lot of times they go for duty ethics. They feel a fundamental pull towards performing their duty, and in the last season, most obviously, they chose to save humanity from being erased. So this is clearly them exercising their duty to save humans. Um, the other thing, too, I think the show did really well is to show that there's different ways and combinations to be a good person. Like, you don't have to pick just one type of ethics and, like, stick to it 100% of the time. I mean, lying, I think, is the most classic case where if you're Kantian, then you would believe that lying is bad all the time, and that is a line you do not cross. But in real life, you do have to lie sometimes for different reasons, and then you can take a more consequentialism view about that lying to see, to justify that lying brings good things, 
and then you might choose to do that. Um, so there's different ways of being good people, and I think what the show is trying to tell us all is the only way to live good is to commit to progress. You have to always think about how to better improve yourself, um, what the next day is going to be for you, and what other things that you want to work on, and then com be committed to that path of progress. Just like what I discussed earlier in this podcast about the difference between animals and humans, we have that ability to be disciplined, to have a plan, and be committed to it. So... Again, I think in The Good Place, I see this theme come up, and the resolution of the show is to, spoiler alert, design a system where people are encouraged to improve, and they are encouraged to confront their own flaws and misbehaviors. Which also makes me think, I wonder what my afterlife tests would be. What kind of inner demons the gods will make me confront? I think that's more a topic for a personal diary entry. <laughs> <laughs>